Hello and welcome to another episode of Curtain Twitchers, the only podcast out there in which we, George and Liv, stick our massive noses into other performers' lives during lockdown. I do actually have a massive nose. It's a healthy size. I have massive ears. Well, that's all the better for snooping on people. True. With a perfect pair of curtain twitchers. So, Liv, whose personal affairs are we delving into this week? This week we are joined by professional troublemaker, Scotty. Scotty has been ruffling feathers and winning awards for years as a theatre maker, performance artist, club host, writer, radio presenter, you name it, Scotty's done it. Fun fact, when Bourgeois and Maurice were born in 2007, Scotty was one of our first MySpace friends and we quickly moved that friendship into the real world and have remained best of frenemies ever since. We caught up with Scotty over Zoom as he was preparing to move house during lockdown two. God, he's always pushing boundaries, isn't he? So bear with us if the sound quality is a little bit variable. This is basically a kind of uh, a hack job to... Yeah, to stitch you up, essentially. It's our attempt to destroy the artist community and... (laughs) Finally. 2020 as the world conquerors. <laughs> no. Removed the arts completely. <laughs> yeah. oh, so you're working, you are working for the Tories? Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We'd like to ride the zeitgeist. Curtain <laughs> <laughs> ah. twitchers. We're curtain twitchers. No, hello. It's nice to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Scotty. <laughs> I'm waving. I'm waving. We're waving back. Where are you? I'm currently in the bedroom because um, it's the most softest sounding room I have in my house currently because all of my things are in boxes because I'm leaving the south of England, oh, uh, the mm. seaside, uh, and I'm moving to the more socialist north of England. Big changes. Big, that's a big move. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah I'm, yes, it is. Let's, let's not deny. But I'm going to Manchester, which I've been going to since I was about 17. It was the first place that I ever got on a train to on my own. Oh. Um, so it always felt exciting because I think about two or three years previous, um, Queer as Folk was on the telly and it's missold me Channel 4. Yes. Yes. I should take some form of lawsuit against because the Trade Description Act because it like told me this like I'm just gonna walk down Canal Street everyone's gonna fancy me I'm gonna go in a nightclub I'm gonna have an ecstasy we might do some things called ribbing this will be fun <laughs> I got to Manchester and it was just like 90p for a shot um get your tea in the co-op and um no one's ever gonna pay you any attention <laughs> for which I absolutely fell in love with because obviously suffering from PTSD you would and uh, I just I just thought I, I really love Manchester and so since that moment I've always like brought my work there and worked with the city and worked with the uh, greater Manchester as well and worked with people in Salford and so it doesn't feel like a strange move it feels like a familiar move mm. and because we tour right so much yeah. like it's it's really easy for us to think of places as like familiar because mm. we know where we like to get our brunch from. We know where it does cheap coffee. We know where we can get vintage clothes from. And so Manchester doesn't feel that much of a stretch for me. It was interesting when you just said, oh, you know, because we tour when you were talking about being feeling at home places. And that obviously for the last eight months, we have not been doing that. Did you have like, did you have a lot of work that has been specifically sort of cancelled or postponed that you haven't done over that period? Well, I'm actually so avant-garde that I've been going against the government and still touring my shows secretly. Wow. No, as if, could you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually an active spreader of COVID. <laughs> I'm provocative, so. <laughs> it's Arts Council funded. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I was I, in February, I was in Canada opening the show Class, um, which is a one-person show about poverty and where we're from and shame and having a bit of laugh about what supermarket that you used to shop at when you were a kid. And so came back from that feeling like, oh my God, this was amazing. We're going to do a three-month tour. And then just before going out on the road, of course, everything stopped. So in our audacity at that moment, we thought, fine, autumn winter let's push things back to autumn winter and then at that point we were going to be touring class and another show called fat blokes which is the dance show about fatness and then we were like okay maybe that's doable we'll do that <laughs> and then 
of course, autumn, winter just turns into spring. And now we're looking at spring like, hmm, mm. spring, is it going to happen? So essentially, with all Scotty and Friends work, um, we've created an alternative programme. So for the next 18 months, we could make digital um, or distanced versions of the things that we were planning to make. Um, which sort of feels exciting. One of them we launched today, which is called Campground Yours, which is a New Year's Eve event where we will actually bring the New Year's Eve party to your living room and give you everything that you need to make it. So it's just, I guess, it's just been these, you know, they talk about the five stages of grief. I think all of us as artists have probably gone through sort of versions of those of like, like denial <laughs> of course we are going to be able to get back into theatres in a month's time <laughs> and then going into this acceptance and then I think now some of us who have got privileges of um commissioners or a platform or a following that is able to support us are able to think about what next but I'm really aware that so many peers and so many of our colleagues are, are not in that position as well and that's what's amazing about you because you're one of those artists that really when this when the kind of things start to go against you it's almost like you you are able to really relish and find a way through like more definitely more than i think i personally can like so it's it's i love i've been loving seeing like even like the camp new year's eve thing like how you're responding to it because i do like I don't know if you would agree with it. I think you have a unique ability to really like take bad situations and like <laughs> say, all right, well, what are we going to do about it? Like it's- I, I, I think because, and I think this is a skill that you share actually. We all come from that world where it's like, okay, we've got 50p, a glitter slash and four balloons and <laughs> we've got a hundred people turning up and they're expecting a party what do we do? And um, because we come from cabaret, because we come from variety, because we've come from like getting dressed in an accessible toilet that smells of cat piss, like we, we know how to make very little feel very luxurious and, and luxe and rich essentially. And so I think it just comes from that. It comes from, you know, being in the back, being sent to the back room yeah. And being able to, you know, so much of our early work, and I'm talking about us three here, is about us collaborating with each other and being like, we've got no money, but let's just put some time against this and see what happens. So I think it comes from that. But also my mum is like, a, you know, my mum works with elders and she's a community leader, essentially. I don't think my mum would ever call herself that. But if... Like my mum will call me up at eight o'clock on a Friday night. She'll be like, I've just had someone come into a, one of the schemes. They need bed, bed linen and towels and cushions. Dad's going to pop round in half an hour. Can you just give whatever you've got spare? <laughs> so it's not, even, it's not even have you. I'm so yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like rip him off the bed and hand him over. <laughs> and so I think some of it comes from that as well, that community work, mm. where you just try to make things happen because... Well, if you don't, they're just not going to happen, are they? With um, Scotty and Friends, you've kind of made, your work has kind of broadened out in terms of, it's not always you on a stage. It's not always you being a performer, which is kind of a, a big evolution because that's kind of how you began, like we did. In a way that kind of has set you up it sort of for this period of not performing because you have become used to this fact of you can be work creatively without having to actually step on a stage. I think about 10 years ago, Bryony Kimming said something to me which I found really useful and I've, I've really taken on and Bryony said you're not a performer you're an artist mm. and um, I kind of asked her about what the what she thought were the differences and essentially she was like you're really good at performing but you are an artist you think more globally and she was saying I just think of myself on the stage at that time mm. um, so I think there was this moment where I realized oh actually no there are things that I want to make that exist on walls or that are community projects or our dinners or happen in different ways. And then, as you know, I'm not shy of the internet. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I think before this moment, I think I've always been really, well, there's no other word apart from turned on by like what you can do with people on Instagram and Twitter and how you can use those open platforms to 
make pieces of work or interventions or share bits and bobs. And so this kind of shift into making things at a distance doesn't feel like a massive leap for me in the way that perhaps it, it might be for other people. And I'm really grateful for that, actually. Like the hindsight of me 10 years ago to think, well, you know what, if there's ever a pandemic... <laughs> I don't know. I just think there's always a way. Mm. Yeah. I think that's probably um, something that I've learned from Lois Weaver, actually. There's always a way to do it. Um, it's about, I think, getting rid of in our heads the idea that we have to be the centre of attention. <laughs> mm. Because, you know, and I think that's something which I really loved about um, Insane Animals. I think we have been moving towards it not being just about us. And we do acknowledge, I was thinking this before we started this call, it's like, we've always acknowledged the people that are around us, be that Julian making the frocks and the garms or the photographers that you work with or the creative directors like Kate Ross working with them. Like, I think we've always acknowledged that it's, it's, it's bigger than the individual mm. that you see yeah. on stage. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's always collaborative, I think the work that yeah. we make and the work that you make. And I think for that's, yeah. When you see that ego, what appears to be the singular ego stepping up on a stage, there's usually a, a quite a few people behind it. Um, and that's what's <laughs> kind of- Nurturing it. Yeah, nurturing <laughs> it. And that's what's actually quite weird about now, I think is that the, the focus is so much about like performers and that's what we're talking about now, but mm. actually the fallout for the whole of this industry is that there's so many people that, that I'm kind of being a bit forgotten mm. in terms of it kind of collapsing. We are seeing a power shift from buildings who held the money, the power, the, the ability to be able to platform us or not platform us, to be associated with us or not to, who held these and built these castles for themselves, built on philanthropy and public funding, where often our names are used to gain those things. Mm. We are now seeing this that power being turned to us. We have the ability and the power. Audiences are looking towards us. They're not going to the the website of those spaces and being like, "What have you got on?" Mm. They're going to those places and those artists that they've invested in. And I think that is that is going to be a really interesting, exciting thing to think about. What how this pans out moving forward you know, how our audiences stay with us and engage with us moving on from this moment. Are they going to want to pay three quid booking fee every time that they book a ticket for a physical show? Or are they going to want digital work to be part of their normal lives now? Mm. Mm. You've, you've got a Patreon, haven't you? Which you've had for a while. How do people engage with that? Is it fulfilling for you and for them? So my Patreon has gone through different sort of incarnations I guess is the word like uh, when it first started out it was to help subsidize me as an artist and to help me get uh, like a place to practice essentially like a university an online space where I could share work in progress or um, ideas and thoughts and then like last year it sort of turned more into a space for writing and it's a space where I share like my mental health diaries, my thoughts on non-monogamy, um, my relationship with my eating disorder. Um, it's a real space for like sort of the overshare essentially. And stuff perhaps I wouldn't particularly want to put way into the public domain and for people to be like, I've come across this with no context. Most people who have been on that um, platform have been with me for long enough that they understand they're sort of buying into a contract that I will be brutally honest. And um, it now subsidizes my self-care, which I find really interesting. So I talk about my journeys through therapy and diagnosis and medication and therapy and all of that stuff, which then supplements my, my self-care bill. Um, because accessing NHS therapy is just, you have to fit into a very specific demographic of essentially stress or depression and you'll get you get often group therapy or six slots to sort out everything that you need and so actually like for me that just doesn't work 
So when I was sat there thinking ethically about my Patreon, I thought, okay, well, if people are going to help subsidize that for me, then what can I help subsidize for them? Um, and now, because it's grown to a certain number, I subsidize um, one working class artist a month through that um, Patreon as well. So again, for me, it's like a piece of work. And that's, I guess, how I always try to make my work. It's like, okay, the more that I gain, what can I share? And so, because I think I've sort of kicked in the back door of the arts now, I try to get in as many queer or and working class uh, newer artists in whilst I have that, that power. That's, yeah, that's so interesting. It's such, it's such a good use of Patreon in that way that you say like, because people have like subscribed, they've signed up, so they know what they're getting. It's not just like, which is sometimes on some social medias, on such, some social media when people are very open about their experiences, which is amazing. But it's also like you say, sometimes you can come across something that might, is a bit like, oh, I didn't, I don't know if I, how I, if I want, you know, as a viewer want that, I don't know. So the Patreon is a really interesting uh, way to have those same conversations, but to sort to be a, um, a consenting audience, as it were. <laughs> and they also know that when I put something out that is talking about my, where I'm at with depression or anxiety or um, compulsions or whatever, that like I'm not saying I need you to help me yeah and I think when you put things out on Twitter and Instagram sometimes people feel like it's their responsibility to see if you're okay and um, we're in that space it's a space for thinking about where this stuff comes from how we navigate it and it ultimately isn't about me saying I'm sad it's about me going I also believe other people are going through this stuff mm. and what devices do we have to survive because survival i think is one of the like the five pillars of what i make work about <clears throat> if i was to you know like sit down and be like okay my work's about this that and the other i think survival is definitely definitely in that do you think you started performing as a way to survive at the time that you started you started performing pretty young didn't you yeah oh yeah I think it was I think it was a real outlet so when I was like 14 I started at Camden People's Youth Theatre which I think makes it sound grander than it actually was it was like 20p a week we used to get out the cold um, but Camden People's Theatre then was very similar to how Camden People's Theatre is now it's like a space for radical thought and newer artists to come in and try out ideas that were politically motivated and they did that with us so the first time you know most people when they talk about the first time they went to the theatre and they're like oh I went to Panto with my mum I was like oh no I went to see Dance Bear Dance by Shunt in Bethnal Green when I was far too young to see it <laughs> so my experience of like the arts was very warped from a very young age but what it showed me was not only I could turn it into a job or it could be something that I wanted to pursue but like I could talk about the stuff that I was holding. So I worked with a company when I was about 16 to 18 called Spare Tire Theatre Company, which is still going. And they made radical femme, lesbian, dykey work, which I mean, when you now see the work that I make, I make a lot of sense <laughs> through <laughs> looking at the doors of like CPT, Spare Tire and going out clubbing. Um, and they essentially sort of demonstrated to me like you know you can really turn this into a, into a job and it can be about your identity um so I was really lucky I mean Matty May who works with us he's our associate director Matty was like oh god it must have been so awful for you growing up in a council space being exposed to all these radical queer performance artists <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I was really lucky that I just sort of fell into the right people and they all took the long route with me none mm. of them were like oh just um read this book and go to drama school they were like okay let's show you by doing um, mm. because they see that I, I i learned well through demonstration um so yeah and I, but coming back to survival i think money like i learned pretty quickly that if i put on an outfit and did a bit of a turn I could get money to go to nightclubs instead mm. of paying to go to nightclubs. Yeah. So I was like, hmm, 
this is powerful. <laughs> and then people would give you drinks tokens. And then people would give you free drugs. So I was like, oh my God, why isn't everyone performing? <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think survival looks like lots of different things. And survival to me now is more about my survival through an eating disorder and mental health. Um, and my survival then was like, how do I feed myself? So um, the privileges of survival, I guess. Do you, I was thinking about like the how, because obviously your work, it, from the early work when, it, when it's you on stage, but also the work that you do with, it's very, it's very personal, obviously. It comes from a very, comes from your lived experiences. And you, you tread such a fine line, and we were talking about this with Lucy McCormick yesterday, between a, a persona on stage and you. With us, it's obviously it's much clearer because we're very clearly playing other people, although they are us. And like, if there's like, what you feel that relationship is for you as when you're on stage as you, is it you? Like, I don't know, it's not a full first No, there's definitely a version of Scotty that's on stage. And people, <clears throat> I think you, you can probably see this and say this, but people who know me off stage, a lucky few, um, people are allowed to come backstage. <laughs> um, they, I think they can tell the difference because mm. there is, there's, I think as me, I'm just a bit of a knobhead that I'd like to think is quite caring. But on stage, I'm like a massive cunt who loves you. <laughs> So I think, I think there's this, like people often will tell me like, I don't know why I keep coming back to your shows. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a compliment? <laughs> That's a poster quote. <laughs> because they know that they're going to be manipulated in some way. They know that something is going to be played upon them that they've willfully signed up for. Mm. And they know that in the moment where I will be like, um, oh my God, hello, how are you? Don't touch me. <laughs> like there's this relationship that I have with them where I'm glad they're there, but I'm not there to be sycophantic. I'm not there to make it easy um, because they've got enough money to buy a ticket. So therefore, I've got things to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Yeah. And actually that... come to my shows when they start touring again. Go <laughs> 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 to scotty.co.uk for dates. <laughs> <laughs> that, that persona as well that you, that you can inhabit on stage. I feel like um, I, I see that when you, you don't do it so much anymore, but when you used to host club nights, it's, and, and that's more, and that's really interesting because it's like, you're kind of we're not in a performative environment here but you're definitely playing a persona which is playful and but can be quite barbed it's it, you kind of like where are we all sitting in terms of the level of reality here which is kind of really interesting and I think that we obviously kind of started making work at a similar time out of a similar similar kind of a scene and that's something I found really hard was doing a show and then still being in a look and then going out into the club and interacting with people. So I kind of didn't ever do it. Like we never went out in a look, but you, you kind of straddle both of those worlds. Yeah. I, Cause I, I, the show is not just the stuff that's on the stage. That's yeah. the cheap. That's the easy, the real stuff, even now where there is a sort of a bit more of a clearer def a definition between Scotty in Fat Blokes or Scotty in Class and the person that you meet after the show, there's a bit more of a, a change. But the work for me is those conversations that happen afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's the people who are really angry that are waiting for me at stage door to be like, I don't feel this and you've got it wrong. And I was like, well, okay, let's have a chat about it. And they're always so perplexed that I'm like, I want to engage in those conversations. And I guess back in the days when it was like mincing through nightclubs, the conversations you have with the normal gays who are just so like, sorry, why? And the, the conversations that you have with them, um, I'd like to think were very life-changing for them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that for me is the exciting stuff, right? Because the reason to do this is because I like people. I like having a gossip. 
I like having a chat. The reason why I'm on the internet is because I'm nosy. I just want to know what people have had for their dinner. I want to know like what they're up to. I want to know the gossip. I mean, it's what my podcast is all about. It's like those real people's lives are way more exciting than whatever you or I could ever make for a stage show because they're just so perverse. Yeah. That's what I love about making work. And people often call my work participant led. I'm like, no, it's just because their stories are really, really fucking interesting because they're just as fucked up as we are. Yeah. Yeah, there's something really cathartic about it, like sharing it. And that's your, your work is very conversational, isn't it? Whether it's online or if it's on stage, it's about creating conversations with people. And that's what you like with you, like you were saying earlier about like it hasn't actually lockdown hasn't been like necessarily a massive shift for you in terms of your process or shall we say praxis um (laughs) have always engaged with audiences digitally from like the outset really i mean we met on myspace i believe (laughs) 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 but like you and also you did the the online writing courses with people right you you writing tasks and things like you've always used the internet and digital platforms as a way to engage the audiences because I definitely feel like what I miss there's lots of things I miss with theatres being closed but that sense of actually being physically with people um and just bumping into people and having those conversations in person and not not always planning it and knowing how it happens but I feel like you kind of have that online with people like you have would you agree or yeah and I think I think because online and digital space or community spaces and dinners and those sort of other ways that I make work are often because or when I'm making work in like working men's clubs or like spaces which are like what they call non-traditional the reason why I like making work in those spaces and I feel like I can is because theatres I don't particularly like I don't Mm. particularly like art space because I don't really fit into the chairs the sandwiches are really expensive. It's full of a certain kind of people that make me feel really conscious about who I am. And they're always hot and stuffy and there are rules and I don't sort of want to pay attention to them. And so I guess maybe my investment in my sort of digital platforms from from that time is because it's just like you're able to make your own theatre on your own terms. Yeah. Do you find that... Um... Like, I mean, it's hard to say at the moment, but do you feel like, do you feel like you kind of know your audience on a more of a personal le- level? The weird thing is, is because um, we're legitimising quite a, a lot at Scotty and Friends. We, we're doing a thing at the moment, which is a, a data survey. Ah. Yeah, get me. Um, I don't know. There's a data scientist attached to it. And oh, wow. breaks it down into graphs and I'm like, Okay, and what does this mean in real people language? But <laughs> uh, essentially, like, what we need to try to do is instead of saying what we feel our audience is, we've got to, like, um, evidence them to be able to continue to get the money to survive to make the work that we do. And we found out across, like, this study over, like, three years, looking at only certain projects, that 44% of our audience book um, one ticket. And so they come alone. Wow. So almost half of our audience feel comfortable enough to be in that room on their own. And then there are these two big polar opposites. One which are like, I think they call them um, metro cultural cultural people. And they're like people who are like supposedly well-versed in the arts and they're looking for experiences and new stuff and political stuff and they're politically engaged and they're liberal. And then the other big polar audience that we have are people that are called up our street. They're the traditional working class. <clears throat> they are people who have got, I think in the old days we would called um, blue collar workers. Um, people are new service workers. And so even when we're making a piece of work like class, which is very, very like honest about who it's for it's in the marketing it's in all the videos it's on the booking forms this is a show for the middle classes we still get a quarter of our audience coming from a working class background and so i'm learning loads at the moment about who comes to our stuff and why they do and where they live and also where they're prepared to travel from 
some people travel from the north um, in Ireland to come over to Manchester to see to see the work because mm. we it's really hard for us to get into Northern Ireland um, and we really struggle getting our tours over the water and so yeah I think I've, I, I do have a better sense through doing that but if I look at our digital audiences it's I think something like 70% women huh. and about 10% people who are non-binary trans or do not want to disclose and mm. um, which I, I love I, mean, I absolutely adore that because I think you know it's disproportionately uh, to the population um, women people who identify as women and just dis- and way disproportionately for people who identify as trans non-binary or don't want to disclose if you think about like trans and non-binary people make about three to four percent of the population mm. and <clears throat> we've got close to 10 I mean that's I find that really interesting because it sort of tells you who trusts you, who feels safe mm. with you, who wants to hear from you. Um, I'm sorry, this is such a boring scientific answer. To this. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting. Metro cultural does sound a bit like it'd be like a family drama on Channel 4 in the 90s. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I didn't know this, but audience development agencies and funders and data scientists have like we can all be put into 10 demographics oh god okay what are they (laughs) so one of them is one of them is metroculturals which i keep on calling metrosexuals and everyone keeps on laughing at me i'm like that's what they're called kaleidoscope creatives Oh, oh what is a kaleidoscope creative um, this is, I mean, it's really awful. Kaleidoscope creatives are people who are like on lower income, who come from lots of different quote unquote ethnic backgrounds. <gasps> Kaleidoscope creative, wow. Kaleidoscope creatives. Mm-hmm. Then there's Up Our Street, then there's um, Homes, oh, the best one I think is like, it's like oh, Houses and Heritage. <laughs> Oh, I want to be in that gang. (laughs) Well, get yourself a National Trust sticker for your car. I'm sure you can be. Okay. But all of this stuff is based on your postcode. Oh. Oh, Wow. Okay. So, you know, when people ask you for your postcode and they want your full postcode, it's because they can match that with some other bits of your data to work out how much money you're likely to spend in the venue how much money you're willing to be prepared to pay for a ticket. Mm. I mean, it's wild what they know about it. The probably terrifying thing is they're probably really accurate. They're probably, I bet. <laughs> I keep thinking you don't want to be boxed in, but then you realise you tick all the boxes that they've well, done This is something that we're now working on because this is data that like people are expecting us to start to collect and to be able mm. to really name who our audience is. We're like, I'm never going to ask someone their gender. Mm. like and so we were working with our data analyst and they were like what questions do you want to ask I was like I want to ask what member of like what political parties they're members of and they're like oh we can't legally do that <laughs> but we could maybe show them front covers of the Daily Mail or like the Guardian and then ask them to choose one so it's <laughs> interesting like even even when I'm not yeah because look I don't want to ask people to define who they are and how they are I'd much rather give people the space to like tell me something that I think is important, like their political leaning. Not because I'm like, oh, no Tories come to my work, but then I'll be like, oh, actually, okay, here's a conversation I want to have with this percentage of Tories who live in this area, and we could really focus work on that uh, geographic location. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's wild, because I think so many of the decisions that you and I are affected by, ticket price and when we're allowed to do shows and and who and what marketing money goes into our shows coming to a, a venue are determined by this data. Wow. That's yeah. yeah. God, it's that's, that's yeah, it's amazing. That's fascinating. We ha- I don't know anything about our data <laughs> for our audiences. I'm sure all the venues we go to know. But <laughs> yeah, it's, that's really interesting because I feel like so often, well, we don't know that much about our data and don't know that much about our audience I I often feel that sense of preaching to the converted like our Mm. audience is our audience and they kind of are on our side politically and they get what we're saying and that's 
can be very enjoyable, but it can also sometimes feel a little bit like, what is the point in saying any of this stuff if everyone sits in this room agreeing with us? And if you can actually start to go a bit deeper in finding out how to, f- how to reach audiences which don't necessarily agree with you, that's a good thing in a way, but it's also kind of, it's, it's a fascinating thing, I think, as an artist to be able to get that data because I think we're kind of generally the conversation around data and invasion of privacy and all that kind of stuff. It's quite frightening to a lot of us, but there must be some interesting results from it if you're making work. Yeah, if it's a way of accessing, finding audiences that don't traditionally engage with your work as well, then it's, mm. that data can be really useful and really used really positively. I think, though, like, and maybe I'm putting words into your mouth here, but, but like, the, the making the musical and making this much larger scale piece of work that is more in a popular format in a bigger house, that is a move towards that, isn't it? Yeah. That is like, I, I could see from being in that audience, I was like, there is a high percentage of people here that I don't think have been to a B&M show before. Yeah. Brilliant, exciting, like that it becomes an audience builder, but also the conversations that are within that piece of work, the level of queerness and campery, that could be people's first experience of that politics. And I think, I don't know, I think there's always space for us to have work like the Edinburgh shows or like camp, which is like, it is for the gang. It is for us to feel solidarity and togetherness. And it is for us to like build on our audience, but with people that share a similar politic. But there are these moments that we have done throughout our careers, which are about reaching beyond those. And that is kind of what I think some of our breadth of our audiences are about, right? It's because we have taken those moments to go, let's think about this in a different way. Yeah. And I think that we have always, I guess, been more recently, definitely been conscious to not be, you know, not too didactic, not tell people and, and just assume everyone is on board with us or assume that these are the ideas and to actually, like you say, look at things from different what not different perspectives but just look at them from a slightly different angle to present you know what we've all heard before perhaps but yeah i think with insane animals that we definitely and the form i think that that was what was interesting about that show is that the form was really accessible like it was a musical it had songs that people could hum and sing along to which our shows do but you know in that form people sort of like oh it was easy people could access it that way but then the content like you say, we wanted to make sure it was still very queer. It's very camp. It was subversive, but with jokes and like color and life and kind of like stuff that people kind of recognize helped, helped it in a way that perhaps our smaller scale shows have been harder to do because the form of them is just slightly not as familiar maybe, or the material in, in like, we think about something like British Values, right? Yeah. That track is a brilliant track. Love to go back to it. Like, if you think about who is in the room for, your, for one of those shows or a cabaret review that you're running, you perform that song. I can honestly put hand on heart and think, most people that are listening to this, this is going to be provocative to. Yeah. Particularly at that time, because yeah. you're talking about colonialism. Mm. And the British gays, they don't particularly yeah. want to engage in that. No. It's the critique of like chemsex and gay sex culture and addiction. I mean, I think that, that's a really brave move. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I feel like that's always evolved over time as that conversation has gone on as well. Um, mm. But yeah, um, th- and there have actually been times when we've performed that song to an audience and I felt uncomfortable about performing it because when you take it it's I think there's something that um I, that I think our work relates to each other is that sometimes it's about being an outsider to an outsider culture like we came from a queer world well, we came from a in a lot of places we we're performing to gay like specifically gay audiences and I personally felt a lot a lot of times like an outsider to a gay mm. crowd so often a gay way into our music and when we were kind of going onto those subjects took an outsider view of it and, and critiqued it and that's okay to do when you're performing to a queer audience and th- and you're getting to a lot of people that feel like they 
get where you're coming from and everyone's on that conversation but there have been times when we've done chemsex party to what is basically felt like a straight audience who are titillated by the references to felching and suddenly the actual the much darker side of chemsex the trauma around gay life and what and, and how that has arisen feels not so funny and i've felt really weird about mm. it so that that is a thing about i guess moving with your audience and your work moving with your audiences and just kind of the context in which something lands it's like this might this is sort of it's a weird thing because like you have that thing of thinking i'm gonna provoke this audience that they're, they're gonna be like politically provoked by what i'm saying here and you have the power and then sometimes it's like oh they actually are really enjoying this and i'm not enjoying yeah. what i've actually created with their reaction to it I feel that a lot with my shows though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I, like when I'm writing them, I'm like, th because often they'll entail me to do something to myself, like to hurt myself emotionally in a way mm. for them to be shifted in thought, we hope. And so when I'm writing them, I'm like, I know who I'm doing this for and I know why. And then when you perform them night after night and you're sort of crying, like, you're like, oh, God, this is, why am I doing this? Like, I <laughs> but then you have, like, feedback or people messaging you or people just being like, oh, do you know what? Like, I just learned way more then than I think I ever thought I knew, which is the payoff, right? That's the payoff for us is to, is, in a way, that's my round of applause. That, but it, I think... I think we all have those moments, particularly when you're doing Edinburgh, when you're doing like 23 shows in a row where you're like, why am I doing this? I yeah. don't like this. I hate this song. This is the worst thing I've ever done. This is, uh, what am I doing this for? Yeah. Because it's not money. <laughs> <laughs> it's to a sort of audience of like 10% engaged people and 90% people that are just like seeing 20 shows this day and they don't give a fuck about you. Yeah. Yeah. And you're all as hot as each other because that room is blistering. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't. Ha I'm glad I don't have any Edinburgh FOMO this year when it cancelled. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what do they, what do they call that? Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. yeah. Where you just like love to go back for more. Yeah. <laughs> And then you get there and every time you're like, hang on, what? why am I here? I think I hate it. No, I love it. No, I love it. No, I think I hate it. <laughs> yeah. I got a four star review. I'm great. I love the show. It's the best. Tonight's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think we do it? This is the question we've been asking, like, ourselves and everyone we've been chatting to. And it's sort of having just started talking about Edinburgh in that way. We love it. We hate it. Like, why do you think you perform well you started performing or and still do why what what do you, does it give you something that you need or is it why do you think you do it <laughs> truthfully i think i've never met a performer that was adored in the way they wanted to be adored as a child <laughs> <laughs> i think in in all of us i've never met a performer who was like not, I haven't met a performer that was never bullied or was never sort of an outsider or was never sort of a weirdo or was never sort of had a bit of a weird relationship with their family. Like all performers make up at least one of those things, I, I feel. <laughs> and also as well, I think we have these, performers often have these insular identities in their head where we like um, have versions of ourselves on stage or we can appear think and I think that's from very young age we can be like playing out fantasies and because the world doesn't say oh my god weird child you're brilliant round of applause <laughs> clap here's the stage dressing you were imagining I think we've always felt underwhelmed <laughs> we've never got that adoration and so I think we're playing out um some of that I think as well we're just attention seekers we just love it. Mm. Just, it's fab. It's <laughs> gorgeous to get up there and be like, now everyone be, you know, I make, I make no secret of, I used to be a drug addict. Um, and when my favourite thing to do, 
at a little session would be um, everyone would be talking. La, 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 la. And I'd be like, shh, 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 just me now. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's essentially performers. <laughs> <We're> just, <laughs> all, all this noise going on. La, 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 and we just go, shh, shh, just me now. Great. And we give ourselves microphones so we're even louder to compete with. Um, I think that's, that is a skill that I think I have definitely loved having. It's like, now I make more sort of theatre and performance stuff. Quite often people are like, oh my God, you've got such a command of a room. And I'm like, this isn't a command of a room. I've made 500 gays with bald heads quiet because I needed to do a bit of performance art. That was where I learned how to command a room. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think that is, it's just part of our DNA, isn't it? We just like showing off. We like the sound of our own voices. We like to be the centre of attention. And then we come off stage and we don't want any of that. Yeah. Which I find really interesting. We're like, none of that. Nope, get away from me. I'm quite shy. Like, because um, you get introverts, extroverts and omniverts. And I think oh. performers are really good omniverts. I've never, never heard I've omnivert. Never, no. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Oh, we'll have an omnivert for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your best work, that. Write that down. Get thank that in the song. Yeah. God, thank God for that. We've had a creative idea. We're going to have a new song by the end of the week. Do you think, um, do you think like applause and uh, to some extent you get it online as well, um, likes and the endorphin rush of an audience and the endorphin rush of, a, of, of online, do you think that is addictive? Oh my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is, there's nothing like gratuitous praise. And if you break it down, it is quite a bizarre psyche that we put ourselves in dark room. We put ourselves out there to be judged and we go, did you like it? And at the end, if they move their limbs together to make a sound, we suddenly feel justified as human beings. <laughs> Could you imagine any other field in which, I mean, nurses and doctors now know what it feels like because everyone's <laughs> been on their doorstep slapping. But could you imagine, like, my dad, a roofer, my dad going up to the roof with the person who's asking to do the roof, and my dad going, do you like it? And then the person whose house it was going... <laughs> <laughs> just a weird concept, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, I do think it's addictive. I think in the early days... Um, there's, there is, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation that will tangle us into other things that maybe you haven't got time for, but coming off stage and then in a cabaret and feeling like the centre of attention and then that dissolving so quickly, going back to an after party and getting high mm. was a real way of me kind of maintaining that ride, like riding that wave and feeling like I could still be the centre of attention and still command that space and also in another way of like slowing down the creative process, like getting high and just not having to think about shows and just or think about survival or thinking about writing or making the next thing or being creative. I think there's a real acknowledgement of creative brain and like why there's such prolific addictions with our industry. Mm. It's quite often because it's just constantly in our head. And when the work is in our head and then we're also subject to public opinion and then critique and then survival and our own stuff from like not getting as loved as we were as we were as a child which I think is a quote from Chicago um <laughs> I think that creates a really heady concoction where getting out of your nut on some poppers and the other business is a great thing to do because it just presses pause yeah definitely we've I've I'm really bad for coming off a stage as well. You have that hit of, of being on stage and then you sit in a dressing room and you've still got the adrenaline bubbling through you and then you pick up your phone and you look at Twitter and Instagram for the sort of second wave of reaction for the show because mm. that first wave is kind of wearing off a bit. It's like Coke. It's like, not that I've ever tried it, of course, but, you know, I imagine I hear that Coke is, you know, <laughs> it takes you up on a high and then it wears down pretty quickly and you need it again. Yeah. I think... Something that I learned through doing fat blokes and class is um, the fact that I, I need a, an artist assistant to essentially look after me for when I am making that very vulnerable work that puts my personal trauma on stage for people to judge and say if they liked or not. Mm -hmm. And um, so we developed this role with a practitioner called Jen Smethurst and they work 
to essentially give pastoral care to me and the participants if it's fat blokes or just me in class and they take my phone away from me half hour before the show and I get it back half hour after the show so in that hour either side it's them talking to me about how I'm feeling and going through anything and then reminding me of care practices and walking me out to the crowd afterwards particularly with class to make sure that I feel safe going into the auditorium and that role has really made me understand the amount of care that I think particularly when you're working with trauma that then that, that needs to be put it can't just be do the show then like you say jump on Twitter because sometimes the things that people say on Twitter, you're like, even though you think that's a lovely thing to say, yeah. that's massively made me feel yeah. rubbish about myself. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's so sensitive. One is so sensitive in that like moment just off stage, like for half an hour, an hour. Or like, I find like, if I meet someone after the show, like if it's just after the show that I've not met before, I just won't remember them. Like, it's like, and then I'll meet them again. And they'll be like, oh, do you remember we met? And I'm like, literally no yeah. memory. Yeah. Because you're in this like weird, like zombie land of like, Whoa! and the people say, oh, I love the show. And I just go, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for coming. It's a weird yeah, I love seeing friends after the show. Yeah. Because you can just be like, I can just be my normal self with you. And I love meeting other friends after their show. So, you know, like we met after your show and it was just like, you can just sit there and talk about old things and old rubbish and have a glass of red with each other and switch off. And if people want to come over and say, thank you for your show, you can say yes, but that you look too preoccupied to be able to have really long winded conversations. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I've just got my friend. So thank you very much for coming. See you later. Goodbye. Yeah. Uh, th th love nothing more than a, a, a short, sweet. Thanks very much for a show. I know I'm an amazing person, but I'm going back to my friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what people will take from this podcast is I'm, I'm basically just like them. I'm very grounded. <laughs> <laughs> Related to so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be like, she's more fucked up than we thought and she's more up her own ass than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as, as we said at the start, this is a character assassination, actually. Yeah. <laughs> We're here to destroy you. <laughs> oh, and, and such safe company as well. Safe yeah, company, exactly. yeah. Um, I mean, you be careful because the shit that I've got on the pair of you two. <laughs> <laughs> you pick your battles a bit more wisely, okay, girls? <laughs> That was the ever-insightful Scotty. Next time on Curtain Twitches, we're joined by a critically acclaimed author of The New Girl, it's writer and performer, Rhiannon Stiles. I had never written before, and so that was quite a challenge because they were offering me this job, and I was like, okay, I really, I really feel like now's a good point in my transition where I can share what I'm going through to kind of uh, inspire others, to kind of add a voice to a, a predominantly kind of media, which is uh, mainly non-trans voices. That then led on to my memoir, The New Girl. And I think through the process of writing, I've just found more confidence than I've ever had. That's Rhiannon Styles next week on Curtain Twitches. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoy Curtain Twitches, then please hit the subscribe button, and don't forget to tell the whole wide world about us. Bye, babes. Curtain Twitches. We're Curtain Twitches.